Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. In just a moment, we are going to read the first seven verses. I've entitled this sermon today, Messiah, Messiah Described. And when we say the word Messiah, this Old Testament word, we have a New Testament equivalent, Christ. And it means anointed one. And so we are going to see how Isaiah describes our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to read here the first seven verses, and then from there uh, we'll expound this passage here together. Beginning at verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation... When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire." For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. We are speaking today of Messiah described. And very clearly here in verse 6 we see the description of Messiah. On December 23rd, Saturday, December 23rd, which was not too long ago, I had several things going on that day, but one of them was I had to go to a barber shop, made that choice. And uh, going back to Indiana, Lord willing, and you may wonder, maybe I should explain what Brother Herb alluded to. Um, I was supposed to fly back to Pennsylvania, actually fly to Cleveland, get my vehicle, and then drive back to Pittsburgh area. But uh, lo and behold, I purchased a van from Mr. and Mrs. Veenstra. And so I am driving back now to uh, Pennsylvania. I get to enjoy, uh, I don't know how many times I've driven cross country, I've lost count. So that's, that's a whole nother story. But uh, I asked Brother Herb, I said, well, since I can kind of be flexible now, would it be helpful to preach on 
Wednesday evening and be a part of prayer meeting. As he said, yes, that would be good. So I'm going to leave Thursday, Lord willing, unless something else comes up that changes our plans. But uh, glad to, to be here. So on my way, God willing, next Lord's Day, I'll be at the Indianapolis Church. That's my plan now. And uh, I'm from that area, East Central Indiana. And so my barber, so I'm kind of give a little backstory. My barber had just gotten out of barber school when he was 18. So it's been over 45 years he's been cutting my hair when I go. So I need a trip to the barber shop. Well, nonetheless, so when I go to Indiana, I get a haircut. My wife used to cut my hair. She's somewhat retired from that now. Uh, and so anywhere I can get a good haircut. So locally, we have a man named Dan. It's the throwback old-time barbershop that I'm used to. So on December 23rd, I went to the barbershop. And uh, Dan, by this point, he's my new barber. He knows I'm a minister. So he said, Chris, are you preaching anywhere anytime soon? I said, well, it just so happens tomorrow I'm preaching at a Presbyterian congregation in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And uh, he said, uh, oh, that's great. That's great. He said, you know, I had a customer recently come in and he said, are you ready for Santa Claus? And Dan said, I'm ready for Jesus, man. And uh, Dan is in his 70s, but uh, that was his response. So, folks, I hope that we're ready to see Jesus here this morning from the scriptures here from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Christ. Around 700 B.C. was the date of writing. And Isaiah as a prophet would have had a twofold purpose. First of all, as a prophet, as a preacher of the Word of God, he would have been telling forth that message to his generation. So they were hearing the words of the prophet as he preached them, and there was application for them. But of course, some of the prophecies that were spoken were not just being told forth to those of that generation. There was a future aspect. So there was a foretelling. And certainly we have it here described for us. I think uh, one of the passages that so clearly speaks of who Christ is, is Isaiah 53. I mean, it's like a firsthand account. I uh, have been finding my way to use bookstores, and I found some treasures while I've been here. I found... Uh, the Geneva series Proverbs at Goodwill for $3. Now, I already had it, but man, having another one, you can't beat that. So uh, uh, if you need anything, I'm like my father. I can find it for you, hopefully at, at, at a good deal. But uh, nonetheless, um, I'm not sure where I was going with that <laughs> after explaining it to you. But uh, uh, Isaiah here, as he uh, gives us this description, it is a description that is... Uh, going way back. Now I know where I'm going. The Lord brought the thought back to me. So one of the books I found was by a gentleman who was from New York City, uh, Reformed Presbyterian actually, uh, Richard Gans. Is that a name maybe some of you know? He's ministered in Canada. He was a New York Jewish man. And his testimony is I, uh, from Freud to Jesus. And as an amazing testimony, so I had shared individually with some of you all, as a Bible Presbyterian minister, the first man who was ordained, not the ones who came in that transferred, that got kicked out of the mainline church, but the first man ordained was Francis Schaeffer. 
And one of our missionaries who's pictured somewhere uh, in our periodical, he talks about Fran Schaefer, Fran Schaefer, because they were under the independent board founded by J. Gresham Machen. I'm giving you a lot of history. You know, I'm the history guy kind of all together. So anyhow, Richard Gann somehow wound up with Labrie Fellowship over in Europe. And uh, a man read to him, this Jewish man, Isaiah 53, he said, well, of course, if they're standing at the cross, there's a first-hand account. Of course, they're going to give that kind of description. And then the man turned the Bible and showed him Isaiah 53 from the Old Testament scriptures. And from that point, God used that to bring him to faith, a minister of the gospel. And uh, the book that I bought, he talks about the psychobabble, you know, the nonsense that we hear in, you know, Christian counseling psychology. So, uh, Anyhow, that's all to say, these are words of life. This is a living book that God has given to us. And here, Isaiah 9, we are seeing the prophecy that Isaiah gives concerning Christ. And so, 700 years before the fact, not only was there that telling forth, but it also tells us that we can look in hindsight and see the wonders of our Messiah. And so I'd like for us just to walk through each of the names that have been assigned to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we do that, I want us to look at the specifics here. Go back, if you would, please, to the scripture in verse 6. And it says to us, for unto us a child is born. Now, when you think of this in the context of Isaiah giving it, and of course we have the benefit of the New Testament scriptures, I'm reminded great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. John himself gives that firsthand account in John chapter 1. If you go to his epistles, he talks about the one that they heard, that they had touched, that they had seen. And of course, John in particular, that he loved so greatly. But the word was made flesh and dwelled among us. And John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So a child was born in the flesh, incarnate. And again, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh and the world dwelt among us. But not only was it a child, we find something more specific. A child is born, but a son is given telling forth this message of a future event, and that son then would be a male. That son would be the incarnate one, the God-man, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus is the one being prophesied. And since we're in the book of Isaiah and we're talking about the foretelling and the foretelling, just turn back a couple of pages to a passage that is uh, well known to us. But I want us to see it again as Isaiah prophesies. Isaiah 7:14. I know you know it well, probably having it memorized. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I grew up in East Central Indiana, first generation Hoosier as the Kentuckians went north to work in the automotive industry. 
And our church that was founded in the late 1950s was called Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so I didn't learn much Hebrew at all, even when I studied it. But when I did study it, I did know some Hebrew as a boy because we were taught, do you know, Chris, Emmanuel means God with us. And of course, when you read the New Testament scriptures in the Gospels, we are told, Emmanuel, God with us. And so here, a child, a son would be born and they would call his name Emmanuel. So here, all these years before the actual event, we have what seems like a first-hand count as God was revealing this to the prophet Isaiah and for the blessing of, uh, to us as believers. So here we have it established, a child and a son. But then we have these names or titles that are given to him. And it says in verse 6, He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's look first of all at the title that we have here of Wonderful and Counselor. Now those are two separate words here. And uh, literally it's probably the idea of the wonder of a counselor. But nonetheless, he is wonderful. And one of the things I thought of when I think of Christ as wonderful, uh, a friend from Germany that used to say these words, his name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages, almighty God is he. Bow down before him. Love and adore him. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. So there is that sense, obviously, Jesus as wonderful. But it is the wonder of a counselor. And the idea here in Christ as the wonder of a counselor, it's something extraordinary and literally humanly incomprehensible. One of the things I've been reading this week by way of devotion is the attributes of God. And one of the chapters that Mr. Pink has there is the incomprehensibility of God. Well, for us understanding the wonder of a counselor, yes, this is beyond comprehension. Just thinking of the incarnation itself as the God-man was, was born. It is a word associated, this phrase, wonder of a counselor, with the supernatural acts of God. And as a counselor... The idea is wisdom. So the wonderful counselor suggests that Christ the Son has infinite wisdom. And then another attribute of God, omniscience, the wonder of our counselor. You know, there's many places I kind of referred to Mr. Gans and uh, the psychobabble that is given out. And uh, obviously we as Bible believers, I know, at least I preaching to the choir, that we believe the scriptures have the answers that we need. We don't need the creations and inventions of man, but yet what the scripture says. And I learned a long time ago, in my college years, that if we're talking about psychology, which is the study of the soul, I ask you, how can you honestly study the soul rightly apart from the knowledge of God? 
And so we have Freud, and we have Maslow, and we have Jung or Jung or whoever, you know, these guys that come up with their own ideas. Humanly speaking, folks, we can't truly understand the soul apart from the knowledge of God. And of course, by grace is the reason we have the knowledge of God. Yes, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, as we spoke of recently, but the Word declares who He is. And by God's Spirit, it came and opened our eyes to the truth of who Christ is, the goodness of the gospel, and brought us to that understanding. And so, for we as believers, then, uh, we understand that as we look at Christ, He is, of all the wonder that He is, He is our Counselor. And we can give folks answers from the scriptures. That's what we should do, being each one of us truly uh, an apologist for the faith in that sense. So the wonder of a counselor. But we are also told, not only is he a wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God. He is the mighty God. Now the term here for God applies to deity. It refers to God alone. And so the literal statement here as mighty God would be the idea of God, our defender guardian. He is God, our defender guardian. And God and in his power does that for his people. And uh, Jesus Christ himself, the Lord Jesus, is our great defender. What a blessing to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the defender of his people. We can rest in him and his protection for all things. The next statement that we have here, and this could uh, possibly prove confusing to us, but we'll hope to work it out here briefly, the everlasting father. Now, did Isaiah have a moment of Trinitarian confusing when he calls Jesus Christ the everlasting father? How can this be? Well, the literal, literal expression, and again, I'm going to those who know Hebrew better than I do, but it's the idea of father of eternity. Christ is a father of eternity. It's not speaking of the son's relationship to the father, but his relationship to time. One of the great doctrines concerning Christ is that he is eternally the son. I was uh, speaking to some of the folks here, different ones of you, throughout my time, and I've had the privilege to go to England on several occasions. And one of the scholars for the particular Sovereign Grace group that I went to, uh, one of his best works ever was a defense of the eternal sonship of Christ. And so that's very, very important that we understand this. So Christ, again, there's not Trinitarian confusion in the mind of Isaiah. It's he is a father of eternity. Christ is above time. He's the eternal Christ. So therefore, the title that is given to him, Everlasting Father, highlights Christ's everlasting sovereignty. Now, another book that I recommended to you all on Wednesday night, in case you weren't here, was The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink as well. And it does such a good job in treating uh, the sovereignty of God, and now seeing Christ as God and all the attributes he possesses, he is certainly uh, the sovereign one as well. Well, the final name that we have in this passage is the Prince of Peace. Now, again, it's possible when we think of our prophet, priest, and king, 
that when he is named prince, that's a step down. But again, we're going to use the language of Scripture and help our understanding that it's not calling him a king in waiting as a prince, but it designates a ruler or a chief. That's the idea of the prince of peace. Literally, he is, we can say, the sovereign administrator of peace. And he removed the impediments to peace. And Christ is the reconciliation of his people to the Father. And we're going to conclude in just a moment with the New Testament scriptures to see literally Christ our peace. But I'd like for us to see another cross-reference because the best way of understanding the Bible is in light of the scripture itself. So if you could keep your place here and go to the book of Daniel. And if you were at prayer meeting, you know that's where we were on uh, Wednesday night, the same chapter, Daniel 9. But we're going to look at not the prayer of Daniel, but what is revealed to him right after he makes his prayer of intercession. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 25, actually focus on verse 25. When we see this idea of Messiah, the Prince. Daniel says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. There we have it again. Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Messiah the Prince. So we understand there's no contradiction of all. He's speaking of him as a ruler, as chief, as the sovereign administrator of peace. But as a believer, how does this apply to me with all the names that I've seen concerning Christ that he is, as we saw from the scripture, a child, a son, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. Well, again, Scripture in light of Scripture, let's see and rejoice in the fact that Christ is our peace. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, just for a moment. I've been blessed this week to have the Gospel of John be the main place I focus for devotional reading. And Christ gives us some very, very precious words concerning this subject of peace, and of course, he is the Prince of Peace. Jesus says here in verse 27 of John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Isn't there so much discussion, it seems like, on the subject of peace? Even from a secular sense, isn't there a lot of discussion about peace? I'm not really old enough to truly remember Vietnam, but I have friends that were in Vietnam, and even I do remember when I was in kindergarten, Nixon being reelected, so I have that memory in my mind. 
And uh, I remember one of the girls in my class in kindergarten, it's funny the things you remember, especially as Sidwell's, I guess, but the five-year-old, who did your daddy vote for? Nixon, I remember Stephanie Marlowe said in kindergarten. But of course, you know, Nixon won big time in 1972. I think he lost one or two states. But nonetheless, Nixon and those around him remember this, you know, the peace sign and the peace symbol. And they're talking about peace. Now, isn't it interesting? The secular world talks constantly about peace. They cry peace. Peace when there is no peace. And they don't know peace. Even a secular artist that I'm thinking of right now speaks often saying peace and love. Peace and love. And I don't think he understands either, honestly, if the truth be known. But peace. You see, people, when they talk about peace, and the Bible tells us peace, peace when there is no peace, but they think of peace really as the absence of things, especially war. We want peace, not war. Well, again, we go back to the scriptures. They're crying peace when there is no peace because peace is not the absence of something like war, but true peace is the presence of, of someone, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the little statement I saw years ago. If, you, if there's no peace, you won't know peace. Now, this is kind of a play on words. But if you know him, you will know peace. And I kind of botched it a little bit in remembering it. But nonetheless, if there, uh, there is no peace, no, N-O, unless you K-N-O, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So that's where the peace comes from. And Christ says he is our peace. We are told by the Apostle Paul, the peace of God that what? Passes all human understanding. The peace of God that passes understanding. And then Ephesians 2.14, Paul sums it up so succinctly. For he himself, Christ, is our peace. Christ, he has made peace for us. The blood of his cross, Christ is our peace. And so when you read the Luke account of when he was born, it speaks of the subject of peace and that he is our peace as well. So do you know that peace this morning? Is Christ your peace? Do you know him? Are you in Christ? Some of our folks that are here today would remember a gentleman coming to this pulpit a number of years ago and uh, he, his children, this morning, since they're East Coast, would have attended the Free Presbyterian Church in Greenville. And uh, he was a history professor. He also, until his passing, attended the Free Presbyterian Church in Greenville. But he did the Reformation in first person. The different characters of the Reformation, he played all of them. He did it for our congregation back in Pennsylvania a number of years ago. Edward Panosian, is that a name you probably remember? And uh, he was the mentor to my brother. He was a mentor to me. And he told a story that uh, I've never forgotten because it helps illustrate this. Speaking of what the 1960s were like and the upheaval and people flashing the peace sign, you know, and having the peace symbol and whatnot. He was uh, involved in making a film about the Spanish Inquisition and the persecution of Christians. It's one of the earliest films that... Uh, uh, was done many, many years ago when he was on faculty there. 
And uh, he had an appointment in downtown Greenville, and he didn't have time to change. And so the attire that he had was the attire of a monk. Now, you can imagine, you know, in the late 1960s, especially if you think of Dr. Panosian, I mean, just, he's been here, I mean, how he was like, but he had the attire of a monk. And so he had to go to his appointment. And as he was walking, there was kind of a typical guy from the 1960s who saw him. And the guy, as he walked by, he said, peace, man. And do you know, Dr. Nosey being the eloquent speaker he was, he said, I have it. <laughs> Why did he have it? Because he was in Christ. Christ was his peace. Do you know that peace? He came to bring peace. Now, in this world, we will have tribulation. In this world, we have difficulty. But don't worry about that. He has overcome the world. They hated me, Christ said. They will hate you. You know, you could just see, you know, when you think about that, why is there such madness against Christians? It's because we're Christians. We're in Christ. They hated him. They will, will hate us. And the persecution that so many Christians have faced historically simply by being Christians. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust that he is your peace. As we conclude this morning and we think of these wonderful words of our Messiah described, I wanted something that I could share with you in the way of the scriptures that could also help to bring this to our minds. And uh, there's a little book that has been a great help to me. Some of you all may have it or may know. It's called The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision. And it's a book of basically Puritan prayers. And I tell you... Um, when I read the Puritans, they are convicting. Uh, there have been times I've read the Puritans, just like reading the scriptures, and I had to stop and it's like, wow. I mean, I am just totally blown away by what I'm reading. Good stuff, you know. One of my favorites is Thomas uh, Watson. But, you know, I mentioned last week my heritage. One of my other favorite Puritans is from my home area, the south of England, <coughs> Devon, Exeter, John Flavel. Because The Mystery of Providence is one of my all-time favorite books and one of my all-time favorite subjects. So anyhow, maybe we're related because we, you know, my south of England is where uh, my family was. So nonetheless, with all that being said, I wanted to find something that would be applicable to all that Isaiah had said, along with what I've sought to do, God helping me concerning the application of this. And this is called The Gift of Gifts, speaking of Christ. Let me just read this to you as a prayer of our hearts before we go to prayer. It says, O source of all good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created, my Redeemer, surety, substitute, his self-emptying, incomprehensible, his infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp, Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above, was born like me that I might become like him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Herein is wisdom. 
when I was undone, with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he became God incarnate to save me to the uttermost. As man, to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. O oh God, take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my heart. Let me hear the good tidings of great joy and hearing believe, rejoice, praise, adore. My conscience bathed in an ocean of repose. My eyes uplifted to a reconciled father. Place me with the ox, ass, camel, and goat to look with them upon my Redeemer's face and in him account myself delivered from sin. Let me with Simeon clasp the newborn child to my heart Embrace him with undying faith, exulting that he is mine and I am his. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give me no more. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to you in that altogether lovely name of Jesus, Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. In particular, Father, that we have seen Christ revealed to us in the scriptures. Lord, in both the Old and New Testaments, we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we are reminded that you so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, Father, we are truly recipients of grace, grace greater than all of our sin. And so, Father, we pray now by your Spirit that we would take to heart your word. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you've given us the Spirit to guide us into all truth. And we pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened in our walk of faith. But yet, Father, if there is one who does not know the peace of Christ which we have spoken of, oh, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May now be that accepted time when you draw them unto yourself. Lord, may we be reminded like Jeremiah that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, you have drawn us. Oh, Father, we praise you for that love. It's a love that we can't truly comprehend. But we thank you for the extension of such love and mercy and grace. And yes, giving us peace because Christ himself is our peace. Father, we praise you for all the blessings that are ours. And again, we humbly thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen.